0: Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Yaron, if you haven't met me before, but I think most of you have. Uh, It's good to be back here at Yes once again and I'm here with you for the next few weeks to uh, look at the book of Haggai together. Um, I have uh, Kiralee with me this morning who may be vocal throughout the sermon Um, and I have my um, mum as well to help me look after her. Um, Helen and uh, Hilkiah, our new baby boy, are at home hopefully getting some rest. Um, yeah, my mum's name's Sandy, if you want to say hello after the service, or you can call her Auntie Sandy if you feel socially awkward about calling the preacher's mum by her first name. Uh, that's okay too. Um, a little bit about Haggai before we jump in and look at the text that uh, Grace read for us. I um, guess there's a bunch of small prophets at the end of the Old Testament, 12 of them, and they're often referred to as the minor prophets. And I guess you think of them as the short guys at school. Um, they're not as big, as, as lengthy, they don't have as much to say as Isaiah, Jeremiah, those kind of guys. And when we come to Haggai, he's one of the shortest among the short, Uh, There's only two prophets that have less to say in their messages from God than Haggai does. It's easy to see why many Christians wouldn't know much about uh, him or this book that he wrote and it's not helped by the fact that his name isn't really attractive to the Western ear and then he doesn't get many baby boys named after him. So, You probably don't even know a Haggai, let alone being familiar with the Haggai in the Bible. In terms of significance though, um, there's really no such thing as a minor prophet. Uh, Everyone in the Bible who speaks God's word to us uh, is important and has something important to say to us. And when it comes to Haggai, he's got these four quite concise messages all addressing a major problem that was facing uh, the Jewish nation about 500 years before Jesus came. They weren't giving God the honour that he deserved and they'd stopped making any progress in becoming who he'd called them to be. There was really something central to their national identity that was missing completely from their lives. And God tells them through Haggai to do something about it. Even more significantly, he tells them what he plans to do about the situation and how he will resolve this problem forever. The theme that really emerges in Haggai is renovation Uh, restoration, reconstruction. We'll see as we go through Haggai that the people have some serious building work to do but it pales in comparison to what God tells us that he's going to do, not only to the Jewish nation but to the entire world. Uh, God is embarking on the greatest renovation project of all time. And so as we look at this book, I want to say the reason that we should care about these messages from Haggai today is because God's work of restoration and renovation is continuing through Jesus. He wants to renovate you as an individual. He wants to renovate, yes, as a congregation. He wants to renovate the global church and he even wants to renovate every nation on earth. These messages are an opportunity for you to be changed as a person by God, uh, for the life of this church to be renewed and enhanced. They will help you think, uh, pray and act differently as you seek to see the church built up across the world. And they have the potential to help you look forward to seeing God's refurbishment of heaven and earth being completed. So please stay with me as we delve into Haggai together and let's pray together again as we uh, dig into this passage. Father, thank you that you are a God who loves us and speaks to us. You don't let us leave us to wonder what you are like or what you are doing, but you reveal yourself to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and in your holy word. We pray as you speak to us now through the words of Haggai passed down to us from centuries ago, that your Holy Spirit will open the eyes of our heart to see what you are saying to us and that, Lord, we will be changed as your word connects with our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you do have your Bibles open to Haggai, we'll be making our way through chapter 1 this morning. The problem that the people were facing is outlined clearly by God in verses 2 to 3. The nation was experiencing a housing crisis. Usually, when we hear that term, It's referring to a lack of suitable accommodation for people in a particular area. Uh, Too many people, not enough houses or not very good houses. But this is a different kind of crisis. I'll read again from verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Apparently, the people were able to find comfortable enough housing for themselves in Judea. But it was God who was left without suitable accommodation. Individual Jews had their homes sorted out quite nicely But the temple, the the building at the centre of Jerusalem, the place where God had promised to put his presence had been left as this unfinished eyesore. I visited uh, Christ Church in 1996 and again in 2008. I think I've got a picture of the cathedral. Um, Bowie, if you can... No? We're not getting... Okay. Okay. Just imagine a cathedral. (laughs) Who's been to Christchurch? Anyone? Julie? Mum? Jeff? Cool, a few of you. Well, you know, it's the famous landmark of the city. You go to Cathedral Square, which is like their version of King George Square, and instead of City Hall, you have this massive Anglican cathedral. And both times that I went, uh, the city was kind of dominated by this picture of a church and that's exactly how the founding fathers of the city intended it to look like and you know the name christchurch kind of lends itself to that but one massive event in the life of the city changed uh, that picture dramatically in 2011 an earthquake severely damaged the cathedral uh, to the po- point that it had to be partially demolished. Uh, the Anglican church wanted to tear the whole thing down, start again, build something new and, and modern. But a lot of people in the city were opposed to that. You know, They wanted the icon restored to uh, the status that it had, had before. They didn't want to lose the symbol of their city. Since demolition was halted uh, six years ago due to that sort of debate, the site has sat there um, in rubble. You know, you've still got the frame of a cathedral there, but you just have crumbled down walls, the missing tower. And so, remember, this is the centre of their city, so it looks like the centre of town all these years, uh, seven years later still looks like a bomb's just been dropped on the cathedral or, you know, it's been knocked down and just nobody's bothered to build it back up again. It's so depressing that when Helen and I went on our honeymoon to New Zealand in um, 2013, we bypassed Christchurch completely because we'd both seen it before and we thought it's a bit of a downer to go there and see it like that when you're on your honeymoon. Like, you don't want to be depressed looking at the building lying there in, 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 a, in a heap of of, uh, of rubble. I was reading recently in a news article that the man who's been put in charge of reconstructing the city is quite annoyed by the, the fact that some people think this is a metaphor for the city's recovery after the earthquake. He said people say that's our main landmark, and they say, this is what the city's like now. It still hasn't recovered from the earthquake. It's still lying in, uh, in, in sort of sh- uh, shambles and rubble. And he said, but that's not true. The state of the cathedral misrepresents the state of our recovery. We've come a long way since the earthquake. But you think about it, that's a funny situation, isn't it? You know, people have gone and rebuilt their homes They've rebuilt their business premises and yet the centre of their city still looks like a disaster zone. And that's not unlike the situation in Judea 2,500 years ago when we read Haggai. You see, the event that had massively uh, disrupted their lives was the Babylonian army laying siege to Jerusalem in 597 BC and over the next few years the Jewish leaders, the the, uh, elite of society were carried away from Judea and taken into captivity in Babylon. After 60 or 70 years in Babylon some of the leading Jews were permitted um, by the new king and now the Persians were in charge to return to Judea for the purpose of rebuilding their city and their temple. Now the book of Ezra tells us that they started this work in 538 BC but they were forced to stop because another king came to power in Persia and people met, uh, managed to convince him that the Jews were troublemakers. If they rebuilt their city it would be the end of his reign uh, In that area and so he made things grind to a halt. So when we come to Haggai's ministry, 18 years have passed since they laid the foundation, they began to reconstruct the temple but they've had it lying there doing nothing now for nearly 20 years. Just like rebuilding Christchurch Cathedral hasn't been a top priority for the city's recovery program, the Jews have justified to themselves that it wasn't yet time to rebuild the temple. They've managed to make Jerusalem a livable city in one sense. Their houses are looking pretty good. But the sight of God's house lying in ruins suggests that all was not well. And before we go on further with this passage and uh, with the rest of Haggai's message in the next few weeks, I think it's critical that we understand why this is such a crisis. Why is the ruined temple a bigger deal for Jerusalem than a ruined cathedral is for Christchurch? A few months ago, Helen and I were reading through uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible by Moses. If you've ever tried to read Exodus, Leviticus uh, or Deuteronomy, you may have found it a struggle to get through chapter after chapter of detailed instructions for the tabernacle, uh, the priesthood, the sacrifices and ritual purity. Uh, If that's you, you wouldn't be the first Christian to ask, what's the point of all this? What does this mean for me today? As we made our way through uh, uh, those books, some chapters were a struggle for us too. But what we realised was there was one dominant theme and message that everything kept pointing back to. Israel was meant to be a nation with Yahweh, their God, at the centre of everything. Their level of attention to these minute details that God gives them was an indication of how seriously they took that. When we read chapter after chapter of how the tabernacle was supposed to look like, what it was supposed to be made out of, what needed to go inside of it, it's tempting to dismiss these passages as irrelevant to our Christian life. It means nothing to our walk of God, with God, we might think. But each verse and each detail is there to reinforce this sense that this was the place of central importance to their society. Everything was to be made with such precision because this was where the king of the universe would dwell among his people, at the very heart of their nation. When we read painstaking instructions about the priesthood and sacrifices... It's because they were vital if God was to dwell among his people. A humble acknowledgement of guilt and atonement for sin, these things were a matter of life and death for a nation that was unrighteous but had a holy God dwelling among them. The final verses of Exodus 29 sum this up rather well after giving detailed instructions about how priests were to be set aside for his service, God says this, "'I will consecrate the tent of the meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt.' that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You see, priests were needed to make it possible for God to dwell among his people. The tabernacle, the altar, the priesthood, they all revealed God's purpose in rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. He had chosen them to be his special possession and he wanted to dwell with them as their God. When the Israelites come to live in the Promised Land, this temporary tabernacle that they'd camped around in the wilderness, it it becomes enshrined in a permanent structure, in the temple in Jerusalem. The temple where God had promised to manifest his presence and where the priests performed sacrifices to deal with the people's sin. This was the heart and soul of Jerusalem and that's why it's a big deal to have it lying in ruins. Yahweh brought the Israelites out of Egypt to create a society with himself at the centre, dwelling with his people as their God and king. In Haggai's time, he'd brought them back out of Babylon for the same purpose. The society that they were rebuilding was to revolve around God and this was symbolised by the temple. You can see it there, the temple and everything built around it. That's the visual imagery and that's the spiritual reality of what it was meant to be as well by taking better care of their individual homes than they did um, of the house of God. The Jews had effectively formed a self-centred, shallow society with a massive God-shaped hole in the middle. This was not who God had called them to be and he lets them know it. Have a look at the side effects that ripple out from the Jews defaulting on their responsibility to restore the temple in the next few verses. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so, to put them into a bag with holes. You know, it's an understatement to say that their economy was struggling. They had nice houses but underperforming farms and a a food shortage. It sounds as though the weather was bad and their prospects for financial success uh, were even worse. So even by materialistic standards they weren't enjoying the kind of society that they'd aspire to. God calls them to do something about this state of affairs. They're to recognise the problem and get on with doing what they should have already been doing. Have a look with me in verse 7 if you've got your Bibles open or it's up on the screen. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain and the new wine, the oil and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labours. Now God effectively says, I'm the one responsible for your economic crisis because you're responsible for the housing crisis. The neglect of the temple shows that they'd forgotten how important it was to live with God at the centre of everything. And so it's like God decided to show them what life would be like if he removed the blessings that came along with him being their God. When I was uh, studying at UQ, which was a wee while ago, uh, the government announced plans to make uh, student union membership voluntary where previously it had been compulsory. You paid it every semester. You didn't have a choice. Uh, The UQ union implied that this would threaten its very existence And they set out to show us, the students, what campus life would be like if they disappeared. Now, I think a few of you here have studied at UQ and so you would know that the most important precinct on the St Lucia campus is not the Fulgan Smith building, it's not the library, it's not even the Great Court. Uh, It's the Building 21 precinct where everyone goes to eat, to drink, uh, to shop and to watch movies. Everything there went really quiet the week that the union closed its operations. Most distressing for me was the closure of the lolly shop. (laughs) I mean, this is where the rubber hits the road when you're a uni student. If the union went, the lolly shop was going to go. Shock horror! It made us realise that some of the benefits that we got from our relationship to the union um, were really there, even if many of us ignored its existence most of the time. Look, in Haggai, God's not running a scare campaign. He's not saying, you know, I'm going to spook you into all the things that will happen if I go away. But he is reminding the Jews how much they need him. He's saying, I'm the one who gives you rain when you need it. Can you really get by without rain? We know in Australia at the moment things go very uh, bad very quickly when the rain stops. He said, if you think, God's like, it's like God saying, if you think you can get fi- by fine without me, see how you go if the heavens stay locked up. I really want us though to grasp what God is doing here. This isn't like the popular new technique for raising teenagers. Some of you will have heard this. If you want the Wi-Fi password for today, clean your room. You know, God's not saying, I know something that you really want and you can't have it until you do what I want you to do. You can't have it until you do what I say. Now, something more profound is happening here in Haggai. God always remembers a truth that we often forget. His purpose for creating us. Why do we exist? Our highest purpose lies in glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Uh, Or if you've read John Piper, you might have come across the idea that we glorify God by enjoying him forever. But from beginning to end, the biblical picture of human fulfilment and happiness is this God-centred society, a kingdom where God is honoured by his people who delight in his goodness. And the picture of human misery in the Bible is self-centred chaos, It's this wasteland where people worship created things instead of their creator. It's where people are destroyed from the inside when they search for happiness uh, in anything other than God. Now since the beginning when Adam and Eve turned their backs on God, every human being has lived in this selfish, toxic wasteland. But God graciously makes a way for many people to come back and find happiness in a society that revolves around the glory and enjoyment of God. And in the Old Testament, the temple is very much part of that plan. If God allowed his people to remain in the state that we find them in when we read Haggai, that would be an act of judgment. They thought their priority each day should be working hard to gain material prosperity and comfort and that busying themselves with God's work would actually take their precious time away from their goal. If God allows them to stay deceived, to think that the true key to their happiness is actually an obstacle to their fulfilment, God would be letting them die. So, his message through Haggai is a message of life. It's an intervention. He interferes with their prosperity and comfort not to be mean, not to flex his muscles or to just get what he wants. He does it because he loves them and he wants them to return to him so that they can find life and joy in a society centred on him. That's why he says in verse 8, their building priority can't be their own houses, Uh, it must be his. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Again, it's to paraphrase, it's like God saying, Seek my glory and pleasure instead of selfishly pursuing your own uh, in things that don't last. Do this and you will have life and joy. Continue in your ways and I will let you taste the death that you will experience if you keep your back turned to me. Uh, Restoration of the temple here is going to mean renovation for the nation, for the people. But if God's house remained in ruins, the Jews would sink further and further into ruin themselves. The good news is we see in verses 12 to 15 that they listened to God speaking through Haggai. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. What's happening here? The people who had failed to take God seriously are now taking him seriously. They hear the truth of God come through Haggai and they are changed. Instead of disregarding God and his temple, now they fear God and they set about rebuilding his house. Maybe it had been selfishness, laziness or fear that had kept them away from their important work but now something stirred them inside and gave them the impetus to respond to the call of God on their lives. And hear the good news of verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. They thought that they could live without God's act of blessing. They'd neglected the place that he'd promised to fill with his presence. He'd given them a taste of what life would be like if he was no longer among them. But now he declares, I am with you. This isn't just, uh, hey guys, I'm right behind you, keep up the good work. He's saying, I am with you as your God, just as I promised This is God's gracious gift of himself to the people. He is with them even though the temple is not completed. They don't earn his presence by completing the temple, by repairing it. No, their work is an expression of their realisation of how good it is to be God's people. They don't deserve God's blessed presence but they do need to live like it matters. What about you and I? How do we live like the message of this passage matters? How do we thankfully celebrate everything that God has graciously given to us as his new people in Christ? The eternal son of God took on human flesh dwelt among us, died to deal with our sin and rose again to life to bring about the fullness of the kingdom of God. For those who have received life in Christ, there's a new experience of what it means to enjoy personal and community life with God at the centre. When we relate to God throughout the week, we don't need to go to a special building to draw near to him. We have access to the Father in heaven when we pray because Christ is our temple where humanity and the divine King meet. When we gather together as a church on a Sunday and throughout the week, we gather as the people of God Uh, of Jesus. Jesus who as Emmanuel, God with us, remains the central focus in all that we do. We experience what it means to be God's house ourselves through the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Uh, As new covenant Christians, we don't need to rebuild a temple to show God that we're serious about his place among us. Uh, He's built the temple and we'll look a bit more at that next week. But you and I do face a similar danger to the returned exiles in Haggai. We are prone to forgetting how wonderful a privilege it is to have God in our midst We're prone to chase other things that we think will bring us more happiness or fulfilment than God will. We're prone to becoming too busy in our pursuit of those things to serve, honour and enjoy God. Jesus told a parable that highlights this danger in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. I'll pop it up on the screen but I won't read it out, I'll just summarise. A range of people invited to a great feast made excuses for why they couldn't come. Two are attending to business. They need to check their fields and their cattle. The other uses his recent marriage as an excuse not to show up. It's clear that their relationship with the host of the banquet was obviously not high on their list of priorities. Uh, If God is peripheral to our life instead of central, we'll forget that he's better than all the things that we chase after during the week and we won't long to be at home with him enjoying the feast of goodness that he's prepared for us. We're not called to build a temple but to come in to God's presence for a banquet. Each person here has been invited to that feast and if you profess that you are a Christian then consider yourself to have RSVP'd. But if we live lives that revolve around making our own houses and homes better, prettier and more comfortable, instead of making sure God is our central priority, then we have a problem. The heart that chases material gain, worldly success or even religious acclaim and respectability, that heart that has no time to draw near to God while it chases those things is effectively saying to God, there's so many things I'd rather do then be with you. I have no desire to come and delight in your presence and feast on your goodness. If that sounds like you, then maybe it's also true that you hope your invitation to the feast is still around somewhere because you'd rather go to heaven than hell when you die. But if you'd only want to worship God and dine at his table uh, if nothing else is on offer apart from eternal torment then again there's something very wrong. And the bad news is God's everlasting banquet is for people who long to be with him and have him as their everything. It's not for those who treat it like a second-rate retirement option. Now, please don't think for a moment that I've come here to lecture you this morning on how you need to make more time for God in your personal uh, family, uh, social life, as though I'm a master of putting God as the centre and you're all novices most of the experience that I could share with you on this topic is failure to do it very well. For most of this year, as I reflect back, uh, I've struggled with stress and anxiety of trying to fulfil various demands in my life, uh, on my time and on my energy. And I'm ashamed to say that much of those At times, I've tried to meet those challenges in my own strength. And I've fallen into exactly the trap of the Jews in Haggai's time. I've tried to find greater happiness and fulfilment by working hard to improve my chances of success. And drawing near to God has all too often seemed like an obstacle rather than the true source of my joy and satisfaction. So as I've read Haggai this week, it has been a word that I have needed to hear too and maybe you can relate to that summary that I've given of the last few months of my life. So what can we do? There's a lot that could be said in response to what we've looked at this morning but I trust God that this is the beginning of his renovation work in us through the message of Haggai. And so I just want to start with some simple application to get us started this week. I want to commend to you three prayers that we can pray in response to what we've heard today. Each of them you can use at different times in the coming week Uh, to help you reorient your life so that God remains central in everything. The first is a very simple prayer of repentance, appealing to Christ to help us uh, when we see how hopeless our state is without him. It goes like this. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. Simple. Simple. You can pray that prayer in recognition of your failure to keep God central in your life. You can pray it when you're overwhelmed by that sense that you have been chasing and delighting in things more than God. Repentance is the first step back to God when we feel like we've been wandering away for some time. The second prayer that might be helpful is one that's been popularised by John Piper but it's really drawn from the Psalms. Uh, It follows the acronym I-O-U-S. The I, we pray, incline my heart to you and not to any prideful gain or false motive. O, open the, my eyes to see wonderful things in your word. You, unite my heart to fear your name. And S, satisfy me with your steadfast love. Uh, this is a prayer that God will change our hearts to honour and fear him, uh, just like what he did for the Jews in Haggai's time. It's a prayer that he would help us find satisfaction in him instead of dishonouring him by chasing after other things. Finally, we really can't go past the Lord's Prayer. The opening petitions of the Lord's Prayer are particularly helpful for helping us to express our desire to God that we want to have him at the centre of everything we do hallowed be your name. Or in other words, may our every thought or mention of you be held in the very highest esteem in our minds and the greatest reverence in our hearts. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray that, we're praying, God create a global society that revolves around you as the king. And Lord, start with my heart, start with my home, start with our church. I invite you to try and praying those prayers throughout this week and see how it helps you keep God central in your life and all that you do. And to close our time this morning, I'd like to invite you to join me in praying the Lord's Prayer. I think we've got it on the screen. Let's pray it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and glory forever and ever. Amen.